Thanks, Will. Morning, everybody. Uh, Great to be together here on New Year's morning. It's awesome to see you all here. Uh, We have a really good morning planned, and there's going to be some exciting stuff that's going to unfold as we go through the next um, 30, 40 minutes in in this message season of the the morning. But um, last week, Lori and I had some friends over to the house, and we were talking about life, and they have three little children, so we were talking about you know, how much energy it takes to raise three children. And one of us posed the question, what, what is the highest number of children any one woman had? The, the same woman. And just at, figure that out in your own mind. Give an answer in your own mind right now, okay? You're going to be blown away. <laughs> there was a couple in Russia in the 1700s, a husband and wife, that had 79 children, one woman. I know, I know. Listen, she, had, she was pregnant 27 times and every one of them were multiple births. Like she had like five sets of uh, quadruplets and like six triplets and the rest were uh, twins. Uh, just amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. But that, that uh... okay, get it out of your system. Yeah, I know. I know. It's amazing. Some of these guys are looking at their wives and say, you only had four. You know. What are you complaining about? Amazing thing is, 67 of them survived. Um, the wife died, of course. And um, this man was able to find another woman to marry him, and they had 18 children. Now listen, it sounds worse than it is. These, these people were serfs. That means they worked the land, and the more kids you have, the more people you have out there working the fields. And so it wasn't all bad, but um, except if you were the mother. So at any rate, here's the joke for the day. Uh, This whole story reminded me of this joke, that there was a college professor that was trying to impress upon his students the seriousness of um, overpopulation. And so he made this statement. He said, every three seconds... Somewhere in the world, there's a woman having a baby. One of the students put his hand up and said, we've got to find that woman and stop her. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right, my point is this with this whole thing. Birth is incredible. Birth is amazing. If you've ever been present at a birth you see that baby appear, you just, it's just, where did this, how did this happen? This is another new human being. Where did it come from? You know, it's just, it's just, it's just a stupendous, amazing, incredible thing to see a birth. Even to see a baby a couple days or a week or two afterwards and you see this couple and before they didn't have a child and now there's another human being that came from the two of them. It's an amazing thing. So fantastic that often in the Bible, God uses birth to describe 
the, the, the thing that happens when he starts something new. When he, and we use that also. You're birthing a new thing. You're birthing a new movement. And God's word talks about him birthing things in this world of his kingdom. And when he does that, it's, uh, it's just as phenomenal, just as life-giving, and, and just as amazing. Now, in a moment, I'm going to have uh, one of our uh, leaders, one of our young leaders here in the church that is really highly gifted prophetically. I'm going to have him come up and share a vision that he had last week about our church and about the future of our church and what God's doing and, and wants to do here in 2017. But uh, before, I, before I have Micah come up, I, for any of you who are new here or if you weren't here for our series on prophetic ministry, um, I just want to make these statements that prophecy never, ever, ever contradicts scripture, real prophecy. And, and prophecy never supplants Scripture. Scripture is what gives us our theological basis. It shows us the stream we're flowing in and the track we're on. What prophecy does is it shows us what God's heart is at any given moment for that stream. Here's where you are. Here's what God's heart is right now. And so prophetic words stir us to greater faith. They, They encourage us to keep on going. And they give us just this sense that, yeah, God is alive, he is working, and we really need to lay hold of this. And so that said, Micah, would you like to come up here? Let's welcome Micah Turnbow. Oh, wait, is that off? It's, it's ready now. Oh. So I want to say Micah is a good friend of mine. We meet oh, at least twice a month, mm-hmm. uh, maybe three times a month, and, and talk and just... Uh, He's a great blessing. So, Micah, bless you as you share this with us in Jesus' name. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, hello. How are you guys? Um, Well, I just want to say that um, one of the ways that uh, the Lord um, speaks through me, well, I have a, a, a seeing gift. That's one of the ways that God will prophesy through people is that they'll have dreams or they'll have visions or pictures. Um, Sometimes they'll see angels and things like that. Um, And God uh, will sometimes speak to, th- to me through that very frequently, um, which can be kind of a challenge because I have to kind of like, okay, how am I going to interpret this? How am I-? It was always a challenge on how to say it. Um, but uh, particularly last week, um, actually, I wasn't really looking, I <laughs> wasn't really praying for anything. Um, you know, I was like, I mean, I was, you know, I was on my way to work and, you know, half asleep. And when I, you know, I get there and, you know, like I said, I'm not praying. So, you know, at this moment, um, you know, the Lord just surprised me. And what happened was, uh, felt like what, what appeared in front of me was a, a movie screen. Okay. And that's a, that's a, one of the ways God will speak through me is it's, it's like a movie screen that appears right in front of me. And, and I start to see like a movie, you know, and what I saw was, um, I, um, I felt like I saw a, a woman there. It was kind of like dramatic and she was giving birth <laughs> and, um, I was like, Oh, okay, this is okay. This is happening. Put down my pen and just watch, you know? And, um, I saw a woman giving birth and, uh, Van was present and he was getting ready to catch the baby. Okay. He was literally like this and I'm like, there's Van, you know, but he wasn't dressed like you know, in any scrubs or anything. He was in his normal clothes and he was just like ready to catch this baby, you know, and there were a bunch of nurses around 
And they were just doing all the vitals, you know, like, you know, all this stuff, being nurses. And then uh, the Lord, in the vision, the Lord who was the doctor, he appeared um, and put his hand up behind Van. And uh, he said uh, in the vision that the baby represents the presence of the Lord. The baby represents the presence of the Lord. And it will be fulfilled in this time, the increase of the presence of the Lord. The cool thing is about this, in, in this vision, as I began to ponder, I felt like the Holy Spirit just, just started to um, you know, envelop that more, was that it's going to grow up in this place. So it's, it's not going to come in a massive boom. You know, it's something that's going to happen. It's just going to start growing up, being nurtured and nurtured. Because God has a plan. God has a plan where his glory will inhabit this place. Okay? His glory will inhabit this place. And so, you know, as after that, at, after that, you know, the vision had ended, um, I, you know, I start writing it down and I, you know, and I, you know, start pondering, you know, who are the, the nurses, you know, the, who are the, who are these nurses? And, you know, as I'm starting to write it down again, you know, this, the whole, the spiritual realm just opens up for me and I see nurses kind of just walk into my office you know, and we have nurses at work, and so I was like, "Wait a minute! They don't wear any scrubs. They had, you know, they looked like they had like little mask things on, you know." And I'm like, oh, "Who are these guys?" You know, and then um, I felt like they began to say, "We are the angels of the Lord, and we are interceding that this word would develop in the fullness of time." Okay, so now you have angels. Who are, you know, and, and angels who are present around, you know, present around in this building who are not, who are not only, you know, doing war in the heavenlies, but they're also praying for the prophetic word being spoken at this church. Okay. Yes. They're here praying for the prophetic word of this church. And I thought that was, uh, was very important. Now I, I do want to say something about angels it might be a little bit, uh, you know, like why, why would they come as as nurses. Well, sometimes angels will come as the message. Okay. They'll come as a message. Sometimes they won't come in the glossary wings and all that, you know, glory around them. Sometimes they'll come as the word they're speaking, you know, so that's, you know, I just wanted to say that cause I might have questions on that, but I'm, I'm going to, um, just pray and just release that, you know, uh, Van felt like, uh, I should pray and just release that over the body. Um, cause that's exciting. That's really exciting. So if you guys could just stand, just want to stand. Mm-hmm. See, it's important. The reason why I'm having you stand is because when you're standing, you're saying yes and amen to this. Okay. Saying yes. So in the name of Jesus, I open up the heavens in the name of Jesus. And father, I thank you for the release Of the presence of the Lord at a greater measure this year. An increase of signs and wonders, miracles in the name of Jesus. Father, I release the angels. I release the angels. Greater sense of angelic activity in this building and around this building in the name of Jesus.
In the name of Jesus. And see, even just stay in that place, even right now as I'm praying, I'm, I'm seeing just uh, angels walking up and down the, um, the aisle. They're present. They're here. Okay? They're here to pray for you. They believe in you. In the name of Jesus. Fire, come down in the name of Jesus. At a greater measure. At a greater measure. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. If you are, if you're feeling the presence of God on you, just raise your hand up high because that's where the heavens are. Okay. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We're just going to stay here for a moment. Thank you, God. In your own way, just thank him because he's, he's, he loves you. He's, his presence is near you right now. Heaven is near. Heaven is near. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Micah. Blessings, man. That was powerful. Um, I I believe that is a word from God for our church body. And um, just to contextualize a couple of things for you, anytime I hear a word like that where I am one of the key participants, like I'm the one catching the baby, I don't take that as, oh, yippee, you know, man, I'm the man. I think I'm representative. I'm representative of all the leaders in this church body. I mean, I'm the senior leader. I'm the, the, the lead pastor. But there are so, so many of you are so involved in this that you're there also catching this baby. That we as a church body are, are here to, to capture what God's releasing, what he's birthing. And any time there is a fresh move of God it has to be stewarded. It's not just something that we get to enjoy. It's, it is that... Okay, gotcha, man. Um, not just something that we... Yeah, thanks, Danny. Um, yeah, let's just stop and pray, okay? Father, uh, we do want to receive everything you have for us. We do. We just, we just want to walk in it. We want to understand it. We want to be kingdom of God people so that we can steward it well, so that we can manage what you've, you, you entrust to us, what you bless us with. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Make us that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so it's, it really is a matter of stewarding what God releases to us. And to steward it means that we need to be kingdom of God type of people. If you remember in messages earlier this month, I talked about what it means to be righteous. And to be righteous means to be right, to be lined up right, to be fitting for the context that you're in and for the thing that you are called to do. And, and so we are kingdom people. 
And it's the release of God's kingdom into the world that this prophetic word is really talking about. And that calls upon us then to have kingdom of God character as a church body. Because moves of God, where there is a move of God, there's also spiritual attack that occurs. And when spiritual attack comes, there are relationships that end up broken. Because one person was recognized for something that another person did. Or two people did something and one's recognized and the other one's not. And the enemy is right there to, to poke at the one that wasn't recognized and to say, hey, you deserve that recognition as much as they did. When God moves, that people who were very close relationally and who had the time to spend time together, they get so involved in stewarding and in, in caring for what God's doing that they don't always then have the time to spend together that they had before. And either one of them then face the risk of developing resentment because, well, we're not as close as we used to be. And that must mean you don't really value me. And there are all of these things that that interfere and interrupt moves of God. Uh, not, Not even to mention the idea of power, that when there is a move of God, people, and I'm not talking about the power of God, but talking about human power. That when there is a move of God and there's people's lives being changed, Others out there look at the people that are the the visible leaders and they attribute power to them. And then that power can become a tripping point in people's lives because they begin to think this is about me. You know, I've been anointed to do this or or I'm the one that was called. And and, and that that becomes something that then can hinder that that flow of God's life. And, And so today what I want to talk to you about is what kingdom of God character is, and how, it, really what you're going to find out is, it's the same character that we need to be effective and successful in life, no matter what we're doing. But it's all the more necessary when we're part of something that God's doing, because we face this whole spiritual attack thing against God's work. Now, you can look a lot of different places to try to determine what is kingdom of God character. There's one place in the New Testament that talks about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You could look at that and say, well, there it is, right there, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. You could look at that. Uh, there's a place in 2 Peter chapter 1 where he talks about and uh, gives this long list of character qualities of a godly person. You could look at that and say, well, that's godly character right there, kingdom character. Or you can just look at the life of Jesus, and, and see how did he interact with people? How did he respond to different situations? But in the last month, God has put it on my heart to meditate on a, a psalm, Psalm 15. And, and so I've been thinking through that and praying through that uh, for uh, weeks now. And I think that's where God wants us to focus. That, that's where I'm going to focus this morning is in Psalm 15. And we're going to read through it. And then I'm going to make some comments on it to try to draw out some of the key aspects of, um, of what kingdom of God character is. But I want to say this as a background for this. The foundation for it all is humility. It is humility. And humility is not viewing myself more lowly than God does. Humility is simply recognizing where I fit in in God's plan and being content with that. And then because of that, if I don't get the recognition that uh, maybe someone else gets by other people, 
I'm, I'm happy because I'm fitting right in where God wants me to fit in. I don't need that recognition. I've got God's recognition. I've got God's blessing. And so humility is the foundation of the whole thing. And so as we read through this passage uh, and, and go back and look through it, that, that's going to be the key characteristic of anyone that is entrusted with a, a part of the move of God and to be part of a fresh move of God. And so we're going to do something a little different today. I'm going to ask you all to stand up with me, and we're going to read this together, okay? So would you stand up? It's going to be on the screen, and um, it'll come up a section at a time. I'll start, and as soon as you hear my voice start to read, you, you just jump right in and read this along with me. So we're in Psalm 15 right now. All right. Starts off. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Read that last phrase again. He who does these things will never be shaken. Okay, thanks. Have a seat. He starts off with this, um, this statement of longing. It's, it's the statement of a lover when he says, O oh Lord, who may abide in your tent? And then and he repeats it a different way. Who may dwell on your holy hill? The, the word abide and dwell it, interestingly, don't mean like a visit to a cool place that you would not want to stay forever, like Disney World. Who would like to go to Disney World? Most of us would love to do that, but you wouldn't want to live there, would you? It's a fantastic place, but dwelling in God's tent, dwelling on his holy hill is just as captivating and just as fantastic, but you want to stay there. It's not just a part-time thing. It's not something you do and then you want to get out of. So he's really asking, how do I, God, how do I get to live in your presence? How do I get to walk every day with this sense that you are with me and I know I'm with you and I'm experiencing your life? And that's when he says at the beginning, tent, the idea of tent speaks to family. It speaks to being part of God's household. Now, in those days, you could be part of the household by being a servant or a slave. But, but today, we know Jesus says to us as believers, I don't call you servants any longer, I call you friends. And so, we get to be part of his family, and, and we're family members. We're, we're part of the whole friends and family. You know, the only people we want to come to this special private event are friends and family. We hear that at times. So we're part of friends and family with God. He invites us in to be part of that intimacy with him. But the second phrase, his holy hill, that speaks of God's kingship. That speaks of lordship. 
That speaks of rule and reign and authority and the release of power into the world. And so he asks, uh, you know, I want to be part of your family, but I also want to be part of the family business. I want to be part of what you're doing. And that phrase, family business, is something that a friend of mine, Bill Jackson, uh, used, to, used to use all the time just to describe that if you're part of the family, then you're part of the family business. And so we want to have this intimacy with God, but we also want to be part of his work in the world. I want to be, I want to be part, how, how do I get to that, how do I get to his holy hill so I can be part of his life? So that I can be part of what he's releasing into the world and, and the new thing he's doing in the world, the new thing he's doing here in, in our church body. How do I get to be part of that, God? And so it's the statement of someone that's longing for more of God. But this last phrase of the holy hill, it's really a statement of lordship. It really is. It's a question of lordship. Because if I'm going to go to God's holy hill, uh, it's... The only reasonable thing to do is to go there and say, God, I am yours. God, I'm going to live my life the way you want me to. God, when I accepted Jesus, you changed me and made me a kingdom of God person. Deep, deep in my identity, I am a kingdom person. I want to live that out. And when we say that, what we're doing is then aligning the new creation that we are with our actual lives and with the kingdom of God that we live in. And so it's, it's really juxtaposed against the idea that someone might want to go to that holy hill for the purpose of pushing God off the throne so they can sit on the throne. And what I want to propose to you is that although we do that inadvertently, and I think very few people actually would do that intentionally and knowingly and knowledgeably, it is something we do. Every time we read the Bible and it says, I want you to forgive that person, and I say, I can't forgive them. No one can expect me to forgive them. What I'm saying is, God, get off that throne. I'm on the throne. And when we live our lives that way, what we're really saying is, God, I want to go to heaven when I die, and, but I want to live life the way I want to live it right now, but I want you to make that okay. <laughs> Every time I screw up, I want you to make it Okay. Every time I mess up a relational thing or I mess up with my money or, or with my health or whatever, I want you to step in and make that okay. And th- that's not what the psalmist is talking about. He's talking about ascending to that holy hill and bowing before the throne and you are Lord and I'm gonna obey you and I'm gonna trust you and I'm gonna live my life for you. And so this, uh, this first verse just really lays that out as to what the psalmist's heart and desire is. But as you go into the next verse, the answer comes. And this answer comes in, in a couple of ways. It Really, he's talking about the core identity of the believer. And, and he says this, he who walks with integrity. And to walk with integrity doesn't mean perfection. In Psalm 19, the psalmist, um, well, integrity is a word that other places is translated as blameless. Now, who here would ever say, well, I'm blameless? Well, no, you could you'd talk to my wife and she'll give you things that would obviously prove I am not blameless or vice versa. And, and yet, this term blameless, he says here, the person that gets to be part of God's family and on God's holy hill has to walk with blamelessness. Well, blameless means this. In Psalm 19, 
the psalmist says, God, forgive me for hidden faults. Now, he doesn't mean things that he's hiding. He means things he doesn't see. He's, he's saying, oh, God, I, know, I, I don't know myself well enough even to know all the different places that I falter and I live outside your will. And God, I'm just asking you, just forgive me for those things I can't see. And then he says this. He says, protect me from intentional sin. Don't let that rule over me. And so he says, as far as like me just willfully, knowledgeably, intentionally going my own way, he says, God, deliver me from that. And he says, then I will be blameless. So he's not saying he'll be perfect, but he will be blameless because his heart is one that is submitted in humility to God. And it's saying, God, in these areas where I don't even know I'm sinning, I, I give those to you and I ask you to free me from that. And in the areas where, where mankind and where I have intentionally sinned, God, forgive me for that and just let me walk in freedom from those. And he says, that's the type of heart. It's a humble heart. That's what it is. It's a humble heart that walks with integrity and that is therefore then uh, considered to be blameless. But he says, he who works righteousness. And he's not like saying here that, that there's a, something that you're working on and then the product immediately is a righteous act. It could be that. It could be doing something kind for someone serving, serving a widow or, or caring for orphans or, or something like that that the Bible talks of as, as works of righteousness. But the idea here is more the life itself just produces righteousness. It just produces it. Everywhere you go because you're a child of God, because Jesus has made you new and because the Holy Spirit lives in you. Everywhere you go, people get blessed. You know, everywhere you go, something good happens. Have you ever seen the, the Peanuts cartoons? What was the one little guy's name that walks around with a cloud of dust everywhere he goes? Pigpen, okay. Yeah, so like Pigpen, everywhere he goes, there is dirt and dust that comes out of him. This is saying everywhere you go, just like that, there's just righteous stuff comes out of you and it impacts the people around you and it impacts just the, the fruit of your life. But then he goes on to this phrase, and I think this is really important. They speak truth in their hearts. This person speaks truth in his heart. Now, the heart is used to refer to the inner being. Uh, You could equate this to the mind, the, the deep belief system that we hold inside ourselves, in our minds, what we think. And so it's not just speaking truth outwardly, but I understand truth and I, and I speak truth to myself. I remind myself of truth because this is the key to spiritual growth. You see, I, I am changed already. I'm no longer a sinner. Right. The Bible calls us saints. Do you know that? A saint is not a Christian who did super things. A saint is a person who has received Jesus because the word saint means holy one. And if you read the epistles over and over again, the apostle Paul addresses the church as the saints in Ephesus, the saints in Philippi. And, and so everyone that's a believer has been made holy. We have been made righteous inside. That means we have been put right with God so that I, my nature no longer is inclined towards sinning. 
My nature now is inclined towards obedience. That's why so often Christians get depressed. That's why so often Christians get discouraged because before my heart was inclined towards sin. So doing the stuff I was doing, apart from there being strong life ramifications to it, if, you know, if I rob banks and I go to prison, then obviously I'm not going to, you know, that, that has an impact. But I'm inclined that direction, so I don't have inner turmoil over it. But once I'm inclined towards righteousness, but I continue to follow the old patterns of my mind towards sin, then I have this conflict inside, this inner turmoil. And the result of that is depression. It, sometimes it is hopelessness. But it, but it tears us up because I'm new. I'm no longer made to live in a sin-filled world giving in to sin all the time. But the problem is my mind hasn't yet been renewed. And this is just the way God's done it, that he changes our hearts. And our heart is our inclination, our basic uh, system of desire. But he gives it to us to renew our minds. And the way we renew our minds is through truth. Now, it's not just understanding the facts of truth. It is actually experiencing truth. It is knowing truth. And that's, that's what we refer to as revelation. It's revelation. When Have you ever known something and then you talked to someone that has experienced it and then you know it a little better? Uh, like, let me, uh, any, any of you animal lovers, please don't get mad at me for this illustration. <laughs> I knew that it hurt people when they lost a pet. I knew that. But I always kind of like looked at it and thought, come on, get a life. You know, it's just a dog, it's just a cat. That's, that was just kind of like my heart attitude, my, my thinking, the way I looked at it. But then I've talked to people that have lost a pet. And I've seen the pain in their heart and the pain in their eyes. And I experienced a little bit of it vicariously. And so I had a little more revealed to me. I understood this truth that losing a pet can be a really heart-rending thing. I understood it a little better. And then our dog got killed when I was watching it. <laughs> and man, that hurts. I didn't know how much it hurts. And it wasn't just because I was watching the dog when, when she ran off. She ran off all the time. Um, but, but it was just losing that, that, that pet, losing that relationship. And I understood it then. Does that make sense? I understood it. It was a truth. I knew it was true. I knew people got hurt by losing a pet. But then when I, when I experienced it vicariously by talking, and then when I experienced it myself... I knew it. I understood it. And when we talk about truth, we're not talking about just memorizing the facts. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. He has this way of revealing it to us so that we experience it. So that when the Bible says, love your neighbor, and, and, and the Holy Spirit reveals that to us, we just, it's just like this, oh, I see it now. I understand it. Whereas you could just memorize those words and that doesn't change you. But when the Holy Spirit gives us revelation, 
than that revelation of the truth which, which brings it into our hearts in an experiential way that changes us. And what we have to do is hold on to that. And when God gives us revelation of a truth, we need to repeat that to ourselves. We need to write it down and memorize it and, and remind ourselves over and over and over again. And think about that moment where the Holy Spirit showed me what that phrase, what that word really truly meant and how, how, it, how, how, how he made it so real and alive to me. That's what changes us. And so holding on to truth in our hearts is just this key part of us understanding truth. Let's look at one passage of scripture on this, okay? Uh, First of all, let me say this. Here's where humility fits in. Jesus said on one point um, that he, he said, I rejoice, Father, that you've hidden this from the wise and learned. You know, the people that thought they knew everything and you've revealed it to who? To children, to babies, And what's that mean? That means, as Jesus said, unless you receive the kingdom of God like a child, you can't can't receive it. You can't enter it. You talk about humility with all of the intellect that we have and the way we want to understand everything. And then God says, oh, sorry, become like a child. I don't want you to be a a double PhD to understand this. I want you to have a childlike heart so that you can grasp this and understand the reality of it. Here's one illustration of that in Luke 24, 40 to 41. This is Jesus. This is after after he has, um, now this is uh, 24, 40, and 41. There we go. So he said to them, this is after the resurrection. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He had already told them this. He had taught them this. They knew the the verses, but here he opens their minds. He gives them revelation so they can really grasp and understand and experience the truth of these verses. And so that's what we need to ask for, uh, is for God to op- open our hearts and our minds to see it. And that is true humility. Now, I think there are two main truths that we've been focusing on as a church and are really form the core of our belief system as to how we minister to each other and, and how we relate to God. And the first of these truths is this, God is good, Okay. Just simply put, God is good. And I think all Christians everywhere would agree with that. God is good. But do you know what happens? We have a tendency to redefine good. Because we think that when we say God is sovereign, that that means he controls every jot and tittle of everything that happens to us. Illustration of that, an old joke from years ago. A man who believed that, that every jot and tittle of life is preordained by God, and, and he's in control of absolutely everything that happens, this guy fell down the steps, and he got up and brushed himself off and said, I'm glad to have that behind me. You don't get it? It was predestined that he was going to fall down those steps. Okay, so... 
the, the problem with that is to say God is sovereign is to say he's the king. He's the king. Everyone is answerable to him. But that doesn't mean that he controls every jot and tittle of what happens. And so when something bad happens, people who believe that God controls everything, then that bad thing, cancer, the car accident that took your daughter, they believe, well, God must have some good purpose in that because God is good. And so what we do is, if we think that way, what we're saying is, God's sovereignty is as clear as a bell. That means that he controls absolutely everything. But boy, his goodness is hard to figure out. And the best I can do is to say somehow, in some mystery, this horrible, tragic thing that happened to me must be good. You follow what I'm saying? So what we're, we're flipping that. And we're saying, no, God is good. And it's not a mystery. <laughs> his sovereignty is somewhat of a mystery. But his goodness is not a mystery. So cancer is not something that God gave you. Getting mugged downtown is not something that God did to you. The car accident was not something God had planned for your life so he could teach you something. Now listen, when we have any, every experience we have in life, when we call out to God and approach it with humility, he will teach us through it. We'll learn through it. We do, but don't confuse that with him causing that event. That's different. It's different to say this, this horrible thing happened in my life and boy, I held on to God. I held on to God. I trusted him and here are the things God taught me going through that. That's different than saying, well, God did that to me so he could teach me these things. You follow me? And so we're saying God is good. That means when we pray for someone with cancer, we're not, we're not saying, oh God, if it be your will, heal them of this cancer. We believe it is God's will to heal them of the cancer. And so we pray with authority. Now we don't always see it happen because we live still in an imperfect world and our minds are not fully renewed and so we don't have perfect faith. We don't know how to pray perfectly and there's all this spiritual warfare that is seeking to hinder the coming in of the kingdom. But we rest on this truth, God is good And the second truth that is really essential is that I am righteous. I've already touched on this. At my core, I am righteous. That doesn't mean all my actions are righteous. That doesn't mean I live up to righteousness all the time. But at the core, I am. And what that means is that I don't have to perform to get God's approval any more than my six-month-old child or grandchild has to do something to make me love it. You know, that child has my nature. I passed on my genetic code to that grandchild, and even though they poop their pants, and and have you ever changed a little boy's diaper when they weren't finished? (laughs) And there's a stream that shoots up. I've been hit right in the face with that in the past. I didn't get mad at that. I didn't say, oh, man. No, I, th- that child has my nature in him. I love him. I love, and so God, God doesn't just love us when we do good things. He loves us because he has put, he's, first of all, we're created in his image, and then through his son Jesus, he has put the righteous nature of Jesus into us. And so when he looks at us, that's, he, he, he doesn't see the righteous nature of Jesus covering up my rottenness. No, he's taken out the rottenness and he's replaced it with Jesus, with the righteous nature of Jesus. 
And that just has so many ramifications for how we view life and how we live life and how we view God. But uh, we need to hold on to those things because speaking truth to ourselves is crucial. Now, we're just going to move through this quickly, but uh, the kingdom of God person relates to others. Verse 3, it says he doesn't slander with his tongue. Okay, so the idea here is literally he doesn't walk about talking. And so the idea is someone who has a story and and they go to this person, did you hear this? Did you hear what happened? Blah, blah, blah. And and they're telling it. And then they go to someone else and did you hear what happened? I've got this great story. You wouldn't believe how stupid Wilson is. What he did, I I can't believe it. And, And they're going around talking. He says, a kingdom of God person doesn't do that. Okay, now you might think, well, duh. Well, duh, but we do it. We got to, you and I, and I'm saying both, I love to tell stories. And so believe me, it is so tempting. And when we know something negative about someone else, or we've heard something negative that we haven't even confirmed yet, just we don't tell it. We don't go around and tell it and sully that person's reputation and hinder their ministry. And believe me, when God works and when God moves and there's this new fresh work of God, Satan is around every corner trying to get people to criticize each other, trying to get people to be hurt and wounded and to go and and to try to get someone else to join them in their hurt and their pain. And, And that's, well, it says this, he doesn't take, he doesn't do evil to his neighbor, nor does evil to his neighbor. Okay, so uh, the idea here is very simply that um, you're, you're a good neighbor. You don't cause distress to your neighbors. That doesn't mean just the people that live down the street from you, but the people you work with and the people that you go to little league practice with and et cetera, et cetera. But you're a blessing to people and, um, in, in, in the community. And then it says this, doesn't take up a reproach against his friend. This is what I was just talking about. It's so easy for us to become upset with a friend. I take up a reproach against someone because they said something to me or they did something or they didn't do something I thought they should have done or they did something for someone else that I thought they should have done for me also and I feel slighted and hurt and wounded and I take that reproach up and I, and I just kind of like embrace it to myself. He's saying a kingdom person doesn't do that. We don't do that. We, we don't... We, we, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter says, love does not rejoice in wrong. We don't hold on to it. We release it. Otherwise, what happens is that person then looks for someone else to share their pain with because I'm wounded and I'm hurt and I can't sleep at night. And let me tell you what they did with the hopes that you're going to say, that guy's rotten. Because then when you say that, I feel validated and somehow I feel like, well, I'm in the right and maybe I'll sleep better now because of that. But truth is, I don't. All I've done is gossiped and spread pain. Now, if someone does that to you, someone comes and says, you wouldn't believe what so-and-so said to me and um, you know, it really just hurt me deeply. I, you, know, you listen for a while, but then you say, hey, can I just... I just need to ask you a question. Are you telling, telling me this because you want me to help you go to them and talk to them about it? Because I'd be happy to do that. I'd love to, go, let's get this taken care of. Why don't you call them and set up a meeting? The three of us will meet and you can tell him what you just told me and, and I'll just be there just to listen and just to pray and bless. 
But we have to avoid that. The whole triangle is called triangling. But um, don't take up a cause against uh, a friend, either that you hear something about someone or that you're easily offended yourself. One of the goals of a godly person should be to live an unoffendable life. I don't want to be easily offended. And so we go on to this next verse. He says, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. That first phrase is really strong, reprobate and despised. You have to look at the second phrase to understand what he means, but who honors those who fear the Lord. So the word despised is parallel to honors, and despised is is a form of speech, uh, I believe this is a form of speech called hyperbole. He's overstating his case in order to to contrast and to to draw this out really strongly. But uh, because we don't certainly, uh, you, you read the Bible, you don't see any indication that we should despise people, we should love people. And by despise, I think there's this implication of I, I hold them in contempt. You know, I hold them in contempt. I judge them in my heart. I think they're a horrible person. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is I don't look at someone who's a reprobate. A reprobate would be someone that you could describe a number of different ways. They might be lazy. They might be dishonest. They might uh, be deceitful and, and j- just a hard person to live with. They, just, they, do, they don't show up on time. They're, you know, on and on and on. He's just saying, we, we, don't, we don't look at that person, and first of all, I don't need to look at them and complain about their faults, but sometimes people like that can be very successful or they can be very bold or they can like be very brash, and you might say, boy, I don't like that person, but I sure respect their boldness. Or, or wow, look at how successful that person is. It's hard to, a guy like that who lies to his employees all the time, and look how successful he is. I really respect that success. He's saying we don't, you don't do that, okay? He's not saying you hate the person, but you don't look at them as a role model. And then he goes on to say, but the godly, we honor and the word honor in the Old Testament is the word Hebrew word kabod. And what that means is weight. It means heavy, weighty. And the more weighty something was, the more valuable it was because it would, it would speak to the whole issue of gold and silver and other precious me- uh, metals. And, and so uh, the weightiness is the value that you place on that. This word kabod is used to describe the glory of God. That God is weighty. His glory is valuable, so valuable. A good friend, uh, Gary Sweeten, told me that he was on stage with John Wimber once and um, um, emceeing this, this, this uh, meeting and that Wimber spoke, John Wimber's the guy that started the Vineyard Movement and he spoke and he said, the Holy Spirit's really moving across the room from this side to this side and he's just, just blown, he's just moving across the room and Gary said that when John said that, you could see, like, like if you looked at a field of wheat and a breeze blowing across it, where you can see the depression, you know, the, the wheat bows its head because of the, the wind. He said you could just see, go, going across the room like a wave, everybody was just kind of like sinking down when the, when the glory of God came on them, because the glory of God's heavy and weighty and valuable and something to, that, that we honor. But here he's talking about that, that word that is used for glory, that we honor 
the person that is walking with Jesus, the type of person we talked about earlier who walks in righteousness. Now, um, he comes to this, uh, to this point then uh, where he, he says, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change, he doesn't put his money out of interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. You know, to swear to your own hurt means that you need me next Saturday morning. I know you really need me because you don't have enough help, and I've committed to coming. And then I find out that there's something else better I could do next Saturday morning, and, and, I, and I just don't show. Or I call you up and I say, hey, sorry, man, I can't make it. You know, uh, my friend's coming into town. We're going to have coffee. Uh, no, if you give your word, you keep your word. If you're going to be there Saturday morning, then unless you call the guy that recruited you to be there Saturday morning and say, hey, do you have enough help? How's the help? Man, I have more help than I know what to do with. I'm hoping someone doesn't show up. Then you're okay by saying, hey, then I'll be one of those guys because I have a friend coming into town. But if I'm needed there, I'm going to be there. I'm going to show up. I'm going to keep my word. I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. Even if it causes me financial loss, even if it causes me discomfort or pain, I am going to keep my word. Uh, This is not the kind of person that shows up late with a bevy of excuses all the time. Good-hearted, but late. Good-hearted, but can't be anywhere on time. He's saying here that, that the righteous person is the person that is there. Um, when I was a kid, the way this all came out, uh, a neighbor had been out, out all night, and um, I was a little kid, and these, my dad and these guys were in their 30s around that age, and one of our neighbor guys uh, was out all night. But the next morning, he came home, walked in, picked his lunch pail up off the kitchen table and walked out and got in the car. They used to carpool to these factories they worked in and went to work. Even though he, I mean, he had, he had been foolish and stupid to stay out all night the night before. But what my dad told me was, you go to work no matter what. He said, if you've done stupid stuff and you stayed up or you couldn't sleep the night before, no excuse, you go to work. In fact, he put it this way, and he was speaking again in hyperbole, exaggeration for the sake of emphasis. He said, there are two reasons you don't go to work. One, if you're in the hospital, and two, if you have a broken leg. And then he said, and that has to be a freshly broken leg. (laughs) If you broke your leg a week ago, you go to work. And that's a little extreme, I think, and that probably puts some things in me that I still deal with on a guilt basis of... Of, but uh, basically, it, it does still illustrate this truth. You give your word, you fulfill it. You fulfill it, you keep your word. And man, if I couldn't sleep last night, then, man, that's tough. But you still go to work. If something else comes up, or if I realize I'm gonna lose money by doing this, well, God will reward you some other way, or he'll pay you back. But we keep our word, we do what we say we're gonna do. Oh man, I just thought of something. I don't want to hurt anybody here. I don't want to. Do you know how many people don't show up to help in children's ministry? Yikes. I got to tell you. Do you know if you're, if you're on the schedule, and I'm going to be real direct right now, if you're on the schedule and you don't show up, do you know what you do to the system? Do you know what that does to the person that's back there trying to organize things and what for the kids? Man, stuff like that. If I sign up and I'm part of it, I'm coming. 
And just because I have something else I want to do, uh, well, if I have to be up all night and still come, I'm coming. I'm going to be there. I'm going to do it. That goes for everything in life, doesn't it? Not just children's ministry. That just popped into my mind, and I thought I'd throw that in for extra, okay? <laughs> all right, so um, he doesn't put out his money at interest. The idea there is he uses his wealth to help other people create wealth. And he trusts God to pay him back, okay? Like, um, he's not like loaning money to some poor person so they can start a business, but then he charges an interest rate that means they'll never succeed. He's gonna loan his money out to bless other people, and God's gonna get pay your interest. And so then finally, he says he doesn't take bribes against the innocent, and um, so he values justice. But then this statement, he who does these things will never be shaken. This this provides a solid life. And then in Hebrews 12, we want to end with this verse. Look at this. It says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. All right, the kingdom we are part of, the kingdom we're serving, the kingdom that Micah was talking about that God's releasing more of here is a kingdom that can't be shaken. And so people with unshakable character are the ones that can steward that and steward it well. And that, that's what we pray for, is that we as leadership in the church will be that and that we as a church body, I mean, you people are so amazing and fantastic and serve so faithfully and give so well we're just i'm blessed by all of that and and so the word here today then is let's just ramp that up even higher you know we're doing good we're 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 walking in it let's just ramp it up even higher and so um amen wilson come on up